2: Welcome to Season 3, Episode 43 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 3, Episode 42 for Part 1 of this three-part case. Listener caution is advised... This episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. 14 months after five members of the Bamber family had lost their lives, Jeremy Bamber was pleading not guilty to their murders at Chelmsford Crown Court during the start of October 1986. Counsel for the Prosecution Anthony Arledge QC began his opening statement and spoke of an ungrateful son who wished his family dead so he could inherit their fortune.
3: Jeremy Bamber was driven to the court an hour before the hearing from Norwich jail, where he'd been remanded in custody for just over a year. As he arrived at the court, Jeremy Bamber looked relaxed and smiled obligingly for the cameras. In court, standing between two policemen, he listened as the clerk read out the charges. The prosecution set the scene by describing the home of Mr. and Mrs. Bamber as a rather pleasant 18th-century farmhouse set in 300 acres of farmland. The prosecution told the jury that Mr. and Mrs. Bamber had left 436,000 pounds in their wills and had substantial estate tied up in property and two businesses. Jeremy Bamber was the principal beneficiary in Mr. Bamber's will and Sheila Caffell in Mrs. Bamber's will. Jeremy allegedly...
2: A key witness for the prosecution was Jeremy Bamber's ex-fiancée, Julie Mugford. While Julie had told police that Jeremy was initially disjointed and worried soon after the murders, the couple had parted ways and she was now claiming in a statement to police that Jeremy was alleged to have told her he was plotting the perfect murder and had hired a hitman for £2,000. Anthony Arledge QC told the court that Bamber was troubled to learn that his family's fortune could be left to his sister's children, so he had to take drastic action. He settled on a plan in which his sister Sheila would get the blame after appearing to kill the family and then herself. The prosecutor recounted the series of events that led to the police being informed by Jeremy Bamber that his sister was running amok in the farmhouse with a gun. Bamba claimed that his father called him, but itemised telephone records for the farmhouse were not available at the time. Arledge told the court that the lights were on but there was no movement in the house before police broke down the door at half past seven on August 7, 1985 to find the home in disarray and its occupants murdered. While it was puzzling how the doors could have been locked from the inside, the prosecutor explained that Bamber had told his ex-fiancée that he could access the home through two separate windows. Arledge went on to say that yes, Sheila Caffell had a history of severe mental health problems, which could be a plausible reason for shooting her family, had it not been for every single one of her friends telling detectives that she had little or no experience using firearms. And, most importantly... She could not reach the trigger if the silencer was attached to the rifle, and the prosecutor claimed there was plenty of evidence that would be presented at the trial that proved it had been. Police now had photographs, taken a month after the shooting, showing indentations and chips in the paintwork of the mantelpiece, close to where it was believed Neville Bamber would have struggled with the killer, and this same red paint marked the silencer. Much like the silencer itself, the marks on the mantelpiece were missed when police first assessed the scene. However, the prosecution was sure this proved that the device was attached when Neville was attacked. Also, Sheila's well-manicured fingernails had shown no signs that she had loaded a rifle at least twice and there was a lack of lead traces on her fingers. Experts believed it nearly impossible to load a gun without some deposits being left behind. Further analysis by forensic scientist, John Hayward, showed that blood consistent with Sheila Kefell's blood group was found inside the silencer, something that had been missed when it had first been inspected. This was raising some serious questions about Sheila's involvement, and the prosecution believed that this was another piece in the puzzle that fell neatly into place, proving Jeremy Bamber was responsible. When Sheila had been shot, Backspatter had found its way into the silencer. The prosecutor theorised the only way Sheila could have committed the crime was if she shot herself in the bedroom with the rifle, before removing the silencer, taking it downstairs, hiding it in the gun cupboard, before returning to the bedroom and fatally shooting herself. Unfortunately, when Anne Eaton and David Bowflower were inspecting the silencer later, they did not realise its significance and had not handled it with care, forgetting to wear gloves. Despite their insistence that Jeremy Bamber was responsible, The only piece of forensic evidence the police had was a fingerprint of his on the rifle. However, he admitted that he had been outside with the gun trying to shoot rabbits on the evening before his family were murdered. No further forensic evidence existed to tie him to the crime. No blood, no hair, no gunshot residue. Constable Stephen Mile, one of the three officers who attended the scene in the early hours of August 7th, 1985, told the court that he was greeted by Jeremy Bamber at the farmhouse, and he looked well-dressed. The constable was surprised that he and his colleagues arrived at the scene before Bamber, as he lived close by in the village of Goldhanger, three and a half miles away. According to Myle, Bamba seemed composed and showed no outward signs of anxiety or stress despite the concerning circumstances. The constable recalled to the court that Bamba spoke of his sister's mental health issues and that she was receiving treatment in London. Aware of the work that would need to be done to secure the scene, PC Mile led Bamba away from the operational points of the area and tried to take the defendant's mind off the situation by engaging in small talk. Bamber was only too happy to discuss other matters and spoke about wanting to own a Porsche, which he hoped family money would buy him. The court would also hear from a police surgeon, Dr. Ian Craig, who also attended the scene and certified the deaths of the victims. He took the stand and told the court that when he informed the defendant what had happened in the farmhouse, Jeremy broke down in tears. After the two went for a walk, Jeremy told the doctor about Sheila's problems and that the night before the shooting, his parents had a discussion with her about the possibility of her children being fostered. As the trial continued into its second week, Chelmsford Crown Court heard from Detective Inspector Ronald Cook. He spoke of Jeremy joking a week after the murder, saying, I don't want anything stolen, when officers searched through White House Farm for further evidence. Jeremy was chastised for the comment and replied, I was only joking. Detective Inspector Cook had initially looked in a cupboard at the farmhouse which had been used to store both firearms and ammunition, though he did not see the silencer that was later found by David Bowflower. It had been partially wrapped in a kitchen towel before it was handed to police. During the trial it was revealed that Detective Inspector Cook had handled the rifle without using gloves and it was not sent for fingerprint analysis until some weeks after the murders. He could also not say what had happened to the clothes Jeremy Bamber was wearing on the night of the shooting. Cook was under the belief they had been taken, but could not confirm where. Bloodstained carpet and bedding was removed from the house before being burnt, though the scenes of crime officer insisted that samples were taken before anything was destroyed. Furthermore, a grey hair which had been found attached to the silencer had vanished, before the device had arrived at the Forensic Science Service Laboratory. Detective Inspector Cook postulated that it had been lost in transit. David Bowflower, who found the silencer, would later testify. It was quite a surprise to find that such essential pieces of gun equipment had been left in the cupboard. Bowflower was amazed as he believed that police would have forensically analysed the house top to bottom. And removed anything of relevance from the scene after the murders. The Judge Justice Morris Drake questioned why a more thorough job had not been done to analyse the scene and went on to criticise the scenes of crime officer, telling him that although missing, the hair should have been reported to the laboratory. Secretary for the Bamba family business Barbara Wilson took the stand and described how a week after the killing Jeremy came into the office, put his feet on the desk and requested that all of his father's things be destroyed. As Barbara Wilson spoke in a faltering voice she told the court that Jeremy was arrogant and nasty as she asked if she could perhaps retain an item or two for sentimental value. She was informed to get rid of it all The witness told the court that Jeremy did not like his father. Jeremy demanded that Barbara investigate getting better insurance for the items inside the property and he informed her he would also be giving himself a pay rise due to his new responsibilities. Telling Barbara that funerals are expensive, he also wanted to know where his father had kept the cash in the house. In the decades following the trial, Barbara Wilson would tell a camera crew a few weeks before the shooting that Neville had been looking unwell and when asked what the problem was, he explained that he feared for his life, concerned that there might be a shooting accident at the farm. This was never mentioned at trial. Barbara Wilson was asked about Sheila Caffell and told the jury that she always wore a black jumper and skirt and that she was quiet and withdrawn. Sheila had once told Barbara the world was a dreadful place, and that everyone was out to get her. From the witness box, Pamela Bowflower, June Bamba's sister, said that to her knowledge, Sheila had no experience or interest in using firearms. Her daughter, Anne Eaton, the defendant's cousin, also stated that Jeremy had no interest in using guns, deeming them cruel, until that fateful summer when he told her husband he wanted to buy a 12-bore shotgun. Bamba told Paul Eaton, Oh, I rather fancy myself as a country squire, and thought I might get into shooting. Anne Eaton's husband Paul told Bamba that a firearm of that magnitude would be unsporting if it were taken on a game shoot so would not be welcome. Anne did not believe that Sheila committed the shooting due to her dexterity. She couldn't even put baked beans on toast. If she was pouring a cup of tea, she would miss the cup, Anne said. Anne also found it surprising that the police officers who attended the scene arrived before Jeremy. She recalled him often speeding during his trips to and from the farmhouse, and regarded this emergency as a time in which he would have hurriedly made the journey. As Anne's brother David Bowflower entered the courtroom to give evidence, he gave Jeremy a prolonged stare. Under cross-examination, Bowflower told Geoffrey Rivlin QC defending that Sheila had been out on a hunt in Scotland with the family, though he could not recall if she ever fired a gun. He was asked about Sheila's mental state and replied, I have very little practical experience of her condition. Mr. and Mrs. Bamber were particularly secretive about things of that nature. The jury heard from Robert Bowflower, Bamba's uncle and husband to his Aunt Pamela. An intruder had broken into a caravan park which the family owned in O.C. Bay during March of the previous year. The wider family had a discussion about how to handle the issue. The break-in was something that Jeremy Bamba would later admit to, although his family were unaware he was responsible at the time. Robert Bowflower suggested they could either inform the authorities or try and scare off any would-be trespassers. One option was to take firearms onto the site, though Bowflower voiced his concern to his nephew, telling him that taking someone's life would be a heavy burden to bear. Bowflower claimed that Bamba replied with words to the effect of, Oh no, Uncle Bobby, I could kill anybody. I could even kill my parents. In reference to his nephew, the witness went on to say, The important thing was that he said I could easily kill my parents. As the Eatons and Bowflowers recounted the events that led to the discovery of the silencer, their testimony had varied. Though some time had passed, not all of the family members could remember the discovery of the grey hair, which was later lost by the police in transit and no one was exactly sure who contacted the police and who handled the silencer. Anne Eaton would admit it was probably me, but she was unsure. We never knew we were going to be put through all of this, she said. As the prosecution was laying the groundwork to present Jeremy Bamber as someone who would stop at nothing to inherit his family's fortune, Julie Mugford was next to take the stand. The 22-year-old looked incredibly nervous, speaking in a whispered tone through streams of tears. She told the court that she had to speak out as she could no longer carry the burden of knowing what Jeremy had done. A year after they had met, Towards the end of 1984, Julie recounted how her former fiancé would speak about wanting his family dead. Bamber was said to have been disparaging, referring to his mother and sister as mad, and that he would be doing the family a favour by ending their lives. Julie testified that she told Bamber to stop talking about his family, as his plans for their demise became ever more elaborate, eventually deciding on a plan to shoot them. Jeremy killed some rats on the farm with his bare hands to see if he could kill his family and after doing so, he said he thought he could do it, Julie said. Asked how he managed to catch the rats, the witness told the court that the defendant grew cannabis, which they both smoked, and the rats that Jeremy had captured had consumed the plant which had slowed them down. Julie Monkford testified that on the night of the murders, Jeremy Bamber called her and said, It's tonight or never. Shortly after calling the police, Bamber and Julie spoke again. Everything is going well. Don't worry, something is wrong at the farm. Love you lots, he said. When Julie visited Bamber after the shooting, she claimed he started to laugh and stated, I should have been an actor. He would tell his then fiance that a friend, Matthew Patrick Macdonald, had carried out the murders for a fee of £2,000. Macdonald was said to have made it look as though Sheila had killed herself. I didn't want to believe it, Julie testified. I was scared to believe it. Jeremy had also said that if anything happened to him, the same would happen to me because I knew about it. He said I could be implicated in the crime. Julie would admit that she did not choose to contact the Bamba family to warn them that their son, brother and uncle was about to have them killed. Julie told the court that she could not come forward at first because she was worried what might happen to her and her fiancé. Even if she did choose to speak up, the police would not believe her as initially they had decided that Sheila Caffell was responsible. Julie Mugford spent a considerable amount of time in the company of her former fiancé after the murders. Jeremy told her there was nothing to feel guilty about, as he had done them all a favour. The couple would go out for meals together, even travelling abroad. However, Jeremy became concerned about how he was being perceived. He asked me if he was behaving okay, particularly in public, I said in respect of what had happened, he was looking far too happy, the witness said. The jury at Chelmsford Crown Court were told that after the killings, the couple's relationship slowly began to fragment after Jeremy slept with another woman. Although Julie Mugford found it difficult due to her feelings for her former fiancé, she eventually decided to inform the authorities about what had happened. I loved him a long time after I went to the police. I still loved him then, she said. Geoffrey Rivlin QC defending Bamber throughout the trial addressed Julie during her cross-examination and said, You had been desperately, badly jilted. Rivlin implied that perhaps Julie had gone to the police after she realised that the couple were not going to get married. Julie rebuffed this suggestion telling the defence counsel, The reason I went to the police is because I couldn't cope with the guilt I felt for Jeremy, not because he was slipping away from me, but because I couldn't cope with such a hideous thing. I thought it was a nightmare that would go away, but it didn't. As Rivlin continued his damning cross-examination, he told the jury that the bright, intelligent young lady in the witness box, was doing all she could to make the evidence against her former fiance as incriminating as possible. Breaking down, Julie said, I'm telling you what Jeremy told me. I don't like saying any of it. I hate it. After five hours of testimony, Julie Mugford fled the court in tears. Julie's mother, Mary Mugford, would take the stand and told the jury that she had got on well with Jeremy Bamber while he was in a relationship with her daughter. He called her mummy, describing himself as a favourite son-in-law. Mary had spoken with Bamber and learned that he loathed his mother. She said he resented his mother because she sent him away to boarding school. He said she never showed him any affection. Apparently she was a religious maniac and he always blamed her for turning Sheila mad. He disliked his mother immensely. Bambera told her that his mother was also doting on her two grandsons, which frustrated him. After the shooting, Bambera told Mary Mugford that he was selling everything in the house and that she could have his mother's car. With the allegation that Jeremy Bamber hired a hitman to execute his family fresh in the jury's minds, the prosecution called Matthew Patrick McDonald to the stand. He stated that he had known Bamber about five years. The two met at a bar, and although McDonald had visited White House Farm several times, he had only been inside the house once. Rumours circulated around the local village and beyond that McDonald operated as a hitman, and he was well aware of the gossip, but the hearsay didn't concern him, telling the court that he certainly was not any sort of mercenary and hadn't even served in the army. He was a plumber. After stating that he was staying with a friend on the night of the shooting, which provided him with an alibi, MacDonald was asked directly by prosecuting counsel Anthony Arledge QC if he had been involved in the incident at the farm. MacDonald firmly replied, No. After the shooting, Basil Cock, an accountant and executor of the family's estate, had been sorting through their affairs when an unsealed envelope was found amongst the contents of a drawer. Inside the envelope, an undated letter was found written by June Bamber, addressed to her husband, daughter, and son Jeremy whom she referred to as Jem. Basil passed it on to Jeremy, who became highly emotional after reading it. The letter was read aloud to the court. My home, the White House. My darlings, Neville, Sheila and Jem. Should anything happen to me and I have to leave you, I write this to tell you of my love for you and to thank you for all you have given me. All I ask is that God will love and protect you through the years ahead, and that someday, God willing, we may meet again. My love always, my darlings, mums. Jeremy Bamber appeared to fight back the tears, as from the stand the accountant Basil Cox spoke of the exchange he had with the defendant when Jeremy first read the letter. As the topic moved to the family's financial activities, it was revealed that after the killings, Jeremy Bamba tripled the insurance for the contents in the farmhouse to 150,000 pounds.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plushcare. in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com
2: people today. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Center comes in. Scent Air diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Scent Air app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Scent Air's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families in Ecovat is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Us for an extra 25% off your first order at scentair.com. The trial was now into its third week and a forensic scientist gave testimony that they found it impossible to recreate the position in which Sheila Caffell had allegedly shot herself. The rifle had been fired at Sheila's throat, although the expert believed it impossible to reach the trigger of the Anschutz Model 525 rifle when the silencer was attached. Though a damning piece of testimony, Defence counsel Geoffrey Rivlin, QC, asked that the silencer be removed it was possible for the forensic scientist to reach the trigger, highlighting the possibility that the wounds could have been self-inflicted if the silencer wasn't attached. Though blood was found inside the silencer, consistent with the same blood group as Sheila fells there was little evidence that the bullet fragments found at the scene were actually shot through it. A witness for the prosecution, Malcolm Fletcher, was an expert in firearms and had carried out testing but could not confirm the silencer had been used. After being questioned by Geoffrey Rivlin, QC, the witness was forced to admit the rifle used in the shooting was unlikely to produce the backspatter effect In which the prosecution theorized the blood had found its way inside the device. The expert witness said the rifle was the least likely firearm in which this could occur, and with the silencer attached, even less so. The rifle itself was covered in blood, and experts had been unable to determine the blood group. The judge, however, would later make it clear to the jury but with John Hayward's forensic experience, he was able to identify the blood group found inside the silencer. Next, the trial would hear from Detective Sergeant Stan Jones. Not to be confused with Detective Chief Inspector Thomas Jones, who initially managed the crime scene, and was under the belief that Sheila Caffell had committed the murders. Detective Chief Inspector Jones had sadly died in a car accident during May of that year. Detective Sergeant Jones spoke about Bamba's disposition and how, after the killings, Bamba seemed emotionless. Detective Sergeant Jones recognised Jeremy was not coming to terms with the deaths of his family and was not accepting the reality of what had happened. You have to be strong and brave. The quicker you accept it, the better, Jones said. Bamba replied, you're a hard bastard. When presented with the family dog Crispy, who had been found cowering under a bed, Bamba told the officer, I hate that fucking thing. This was quite clear when Crispy was later put down, as the dog had turned savage since the death of June his most loved member of the Bamber family. Chelmsford Crown Court heard how a few days after the murders, Bamber's demeanour changed and he began to laugh with officers, even offering them an alcoholic drink. The topic of the order in which his family had died also came up when Bamber realised this could affect the will. Upon finding out that his ex-fiancée had spoken to officers claiming he was responsible, Bamba told police, She has lost me, and if she can put me behind bars, then nobody else would have me either. Still in shock following his arrest, he said, You're not serious. You must want me for something else, not murder. While being questioned, Bamba was told that police could prove that he committed the murders, his sister could not have reached the trigger he strenuously denied the allegation and when asked to explain how sheila could have shot herself twice he replied it was an automatic gun nerves anything could have triggered it off the court would finally hear from Jeremy Bamber during the middle of October 1986. Over five hours, the 25-year-old gave evidence wearing a blue suit and white shirt. Jeremy spoke softly and remained calm throughout his testimony. At no point in the trial did the prosecution speak of a history of violence, because there was none. Jeremy Bamber, born Jeremy Paul Marsham, was adopted by his parents Neville and June shortly after his birth on January 13th, 1961. He was the unwanted son of a married army sergeant and a vicar's daughter. They had given up their son for adoption to the Church of England's Children's Society as he was a child out of wedlock, which was frowned upon at the time. Neville and June Bamba married in 1949 and had been trying to conceive naturally. However, following eight years of disappointment, they adopted their first daughter, Sheila Jean, a few years before Jeremy. Both children were raised on the grounds of White House Farm in Tollshunt, Darcy, a property owned by the Bamba family who ran a successful farming business. Jeremy and Sheila would occasionally see their older cousins Anne Eaton and David Bowflower, who were brought up in the village of Wicks around 25 miles away. Jeremy later claimed that his wider family would refer to him as cuckoo, a cruel joke, which refers to the cuckoo bird often labelled a parasite, as it lays its eggs in the nests of other birds so its offspring can take food that would have otherwise gone to the host's other babies. Jeremy first attended St. Nicholas Primary School before moving to a private prep school called Molden Court, a short distance from the family home. As they grew to teenagers struggling to fully integrate themselves into the rural way of life, the brother and sister were sent to boarding school, a choice that Jeremy would never forgive. As he spent his formative years at Gresham School in Holt Norfolk, he was extremely resentful. Why adopt a child if you're just going to send them away again, Jeremy would often ponder. Little interest in his education left him with no academic achievements after school, much to the disappointment of his parents, before he decided to attend a college in Colchester, making up for lost time, gaining his qualifications. In 1978, Jeremy began travelling. He had little or no interest working at the family farm, and the endless quarrelling with his father no doubt prompted his adventures abroad. For a few years he travelled at his father's expense between Australia, New Zealand and East Asia. One of Bamber's cousins claims that Jeremy had to rush back to England due to there being rumours that he was somehow involved in a robbery, though questions still remain about the incident. Returning home, Bamber found himself a job working as a waiter in Colchester, but it would not be long before he would find himself back at the farm working for N and J Bamber Limited. If he wanted to receive his inheritance, he had to be a working member of the family's business. Jeremy much preferred to spend his time in local bars and nightclubs rather than adopting his parents' way of life, living off the land and hunting for game. There were frequent complaints from his mother about his behaviour and his father was not shy in telling Jeremy that he was not pulling his weight. Spending copious amounts of time under the light of his sunbed installed at his cottage in Goldhanger, Jeremy enjoyed a fun-loving lifestyle which his salary from the family business afforded him and he somehow also found the time to supplement his income, growing and selling marijuana. The cottage where he lived was owned by his father and he was also given a modest car for work but Jeremy set his sights higher as he had always dreamed of owning a Porsche. In court, defence counsel for Jeremy Bamber walked him through the events of that fateful day naming each family member. As he did so one by one. Jeffrey Rivlin asked Bamber if he killed them. Each time, Jeremy Bamber replied, No. He spoke of the love he had for his parents and sister, but found her mental health concerns tough to comprehend. After school, Sheila had left home and moved to London to pursue a career as a secretary. When that failed to make ends meet, she decided she wanted to be a hairdresser. This was all while she had plans to be a model. During this time, she met Colin Cafell. The pair married in 1977, and a few years later, Sheila fell pregnant. But before their twin sons, Daniel and Nicholas, were born, the couple had gone their separate ways. Cracks in their marriage had started to appear, and Sheila's undiagnosed mental health problems only compounded matters. She had also sought out her biological mother, but the meeting did not go as well as Sheila hoped, leading to yet more distress. Sheila began to strike out at inanimate objects such as kitchen utensils, but this progressed to her hitting Colin fell. He would later say, "'Apart from the odd occasion when she struck me in a temper, she has, to my knowledge, never struck anyone.'" Sheila had been seen by a social worker, then a psychiatric nurse, Before being admitted to a hospital where she was diagnosed with schizophrenia during the autumn of 1983. Sheila received care at St Andrew's Hospital in Northampton. Although she had split up from Colin and the children remained in his care, she was close to her ex husband and they spoke often. She was receiving antipsychotic medication by injection from a healthcare professional and was staying with the twins at their grandparents during the weekend leading up to August 7, 1985. Accounts of Sheila's behaviour on August 6th are inconsistent, some saying she seemed happy, others that she appeared to be in a world of her own. From the witness stand, Jeremy Bamber spoke about the night of the killings and retraced his steps of the day. He had been out working on the farm with his father while his mother, sister and the twins had been out shopping. During the evening he made himself a sandwich while his parents ate supper. He testified that as his mother and father were discussing a family matter, he loaded a magazine, attached it to the same semi-automatic rifle that would be later used in the killings and headed outside. Jeremy wanted to deal with some rabbits he had seen near the store shed. sight and silencer were not attached to the weapon. He returned barely five minutes later. The rabbits had disappeared. Jeremy removed the magazine and left the weapon in the kitchen with ammunition nearby. At approximately 9.30pm he left the farmhouse, got into his car and drove home to Goldhanger. Earlier, his parents had been discussing his sister's mental health, along with the possibility of putting her twin sons into foster care. Sheila had been seriously ill, obsessing about an impending force of evil. Jeremy said that Sheila was uninterested while the discussion took place, staring into space with a vacant look in her eyes. Counsel for the Defence Geoffrey Rivlin QC explained to the jury that the prosecution had not revealed the full depths of Sheila Cafeld’s mental health concerns and claimed she was dangerous. Rivlin said that she was delusional and believed she was being taken over by the devil. He also told the court that she wanted to have sex with her six-year-old twin sons. She was locked in a coven of evil, he said. And went on to claim Sheila's mother was central to her unbalanced state of mind. Jeremy believed that his mother disliked her children's independence and claimed that she forced her daughter into marriage after an earlier miscarriage. He also said that his mother called Julie Monkford a harlot when she discovered that Julie had stayed at his home in Goldhanger. In 1984, June Bamber had a mental break and turned to religion as a way to balance the instability she felt. She would write out passages of scripture, leaving them throughout the house as a way to inform and educate her morally questionable adult children. But this only led to further fractures in Sheila's already fragile mental state. Bamber was questioned if he ever saw his sister strike out and told the court how on one occasion he witnessed his sister punch one of her sons in the face twice with a full fist. A statement which in later years would be highly disputed. Under cross-examination, Bamba was asked to expand on his sister's delusions, and said that she believed she was a variety of different people, including Joan of Arc. She also went as far as to claim that she was God, and then the Virgin Mary. Jeremy testified that his sister had spoken about suicide that she wanted to go to heaven and wanted to take people with her. Once Bamber had finished describing his sister's failing grasp on reality, Anthony Arledge QC prosecuting put it to the defendant that perhaps he had been using Sheila's problems as a way to hide the fact that he was the murderer. Besides... He was willing to break into another family property and steal a considerable amount of money from them, before making it look as though it was a random burglary, smashing a window from the outside. Bamber denied the murders, but did admit to the theft of £980 at the caravan site in Osea Bay. He described his actions as downright and dishonest, bluntly saying, it was greed When this statement was reported in the media, along with an exchange in which Jeremy was asked by a barrister if he was telling the truth, and he replied, That is what you have got to establish. This would only cement his guilt in the media's eyes. In another interesting discovery... While Anne Eaton and David Bowflower had been at the farmhouse back on August 10th, 1985, a few days after the murders, and discovered that one of the kitchen windows could be opened from the outside of the property. This would give an intruder or someone who had experience in burglary the ability to slip in and out of the property undetected. An essential piece of information missed by police before they smashed down the door to the property believing the farmhouse had been fully secured from the inside. The testimony from Jeremy's wider family was repeated to the court, in which it was claimed that Jeremy had often spoken about his dislike for his parents and told his uncle he could easily have shot them. In response to this, Jeremy replied, I never said anything remotely like that. Jeremy argued that every single one of the witnesses that testified against him was lying. Into its fourth week, the trial would hear from several witnesses, a friend of Sheila Cafel's, a psychiatrist that was treating her, and a consultant psychiatrist. Dr Hugh Ferguson from St Andrews in Northampton told the court that Sheila was undergoing treatment for paranoid schizophrenia and throughout 1984 her state of mind was more balanced. However, in March of the following year, she suffered what he described as a natural relapse and she was taken back to the hospital upon her father's request. The psychiatrist said that Sheila did not discuss suicide with him despite it being allegedly mentioned to her family members. Dr. Ferguson described her as badly disturbed, but did not believe that she was the type of person that could be violent towards her family. He said, She had complex ideas about having sex with her twin sons. She thought her sons would seduce her and saw evil in both of them. In particular, she thought Nicholas was a woman hater and a potential murderer. It was understood that some of Sheila's delusional beliefs may have been prompted by a mother. The doctor stated, At the age of 17, her mother found her in a highly questionable position and called her the devil's child. The incident related to Sheila sunbathing naked. Dr. Hugh Ferguson was asked how Sheila might react if her children were placed into foster care. He responded, I would have expected her to react very strongly to the loss of her children. A further divide between mother and daughter came when Sheila, 18 at the time, became pregnant. June explained that Sheila's actions with Colin Caffell were sinful, as they were not married. June arranged an appointment with the doctor, and the termination of the pregnancy would have a lasting effect on Sheila's mental state. Things were then made worse when she suffered a miscarriage. Giving evidence for the defense, consultant psychiatrist Dr. John Bradley also voiced his opinions regarding paranoid schizophrenia and thought it possible Sheila considered the act of killing her family and herself to escape the feelings of persecution she felt. He said that some patients he had seen with similar mental health problems had spoken of killing themselves and others. The court would also hear from Bernard Knight, a professor of forensic pathology and a home office pathologist. As the possibility of Sheila being the killer was raised, He proposed a possible reason why Sheila's hands and feet were absent of blood and the spilt brown sugar that covered the kitchen floor. He said that suicide victims do on occasion wash themselves before taking their own life, but insisted that women seldom shot themselves, most certainly not in the throat. Weighing up the possibilities and addressing the lack of injuries to Sheila, he said, I think it would be difficult for someone else to do this without her objecting. As the trial continued to focus on Sheila Caffell's mental state at the time of the killings, Geoffrey Rivlin QC read a statement provided by Freddie Amami, a friend who often spent time at Sheila's flat in Moreshead Mansions in Maida Vale, London. The property had been purchased by Sheila's father, so she could be near her sons who at that point were living with their father in Kilburn, around two miles away. Freddie Amami described himself as a confidant to Sheila. He spoke of her deep and intense dislike for her adoptive mother June, as she was often quoting scripture, telling her daughter that it was wrong to be intimate with a man before marriage. Prior to her admission to hospital in March 1985, Sheila was speaking on the phone to another friend while Freddie Amami was in her flat. Sheila became hysterical when the phone line went dead. She started beating the walls with her fists, claiming the phone had been bugged. Freddie Amami was worried about his safety and highly concerned for his friend. She kept talking of God and stated that the devil was sitting opposite her, his statement read. Before long, Sheila's mother-in-law arrived and managed to find a prescription for some medication mommy went out to collect it, but when he returned to the flat he was met by Colin Caffell's mother in the doorway. She was leaving as she had been attacked by Sheila. In later years, Colin Caffell and his mother would dispute this sequence of events as never happening. But they never had the opportunity to raise this argument in court. And while Colin did acknowledge that Sheila had hit him on the odd occasion, threats were almost always verbal. He tried to shoulder the blame for at least one of Sheila's outbursts after she had discovered he had slept with someone else. The court later adjourned as the jury were taken to a police shooting range near Colchester. The 28-mile drive was escorted by a police convoy and Malcolm Fletcher, a witness for the prosecution, fired the rifle used in the killing several times into large blocks of soap to absorb the impact. Five shots were carried out without using the silencer, and four more after it was attached. During the ten-minute reconstruction, Fletcher was asked by the judge about the volume of the shots. Fletcher replied, In a normal room it's bound to be a bit louder. You are bound to get some sound reflected about the room. Jeremy Bamber chose not to attend. After the court reconvened, the prosecutor began his closing arguments. It was theorised that after Jeremy had driven home on the evening of August 6, 1985, he returned in the early hours of the next day, travelling cross-country, possibly by bicycle, to avoid being seen in his car on the main roads. Although the farmhouse was locked from the inside, Jeremy had found a way to gain entry through a window that could be pried open from the outside. Once inside the property, he quietly loaded the magazine into the rifle with the silencer attached, collected some more ammunition, disabled the telephone, perhaps by simply leaving the kitchen phone off the hook, and went about ending the lives of his family. His father put up a valiant struggle in the kitchen, during which time the silence had damaged the paintwork on the mantelpiece above the kitchen's arga cooker. As Neville had been wounded upstairs, this was not an even fight. Anthony arlich QC explained that Bamba began to stage the scene fully aware that with his sister's mental health problems she would make the perfect suspect. But when he tried to make it look as though she had shot herself, Bamba realised that she would be unable to reach the trigger on the rifle if the silencer was attached. He unscrewed it, oblivious to the blood that had pulled inside the device, before returning it to the gun cupboard. He then cycled home, informing the police that he had recently received a call from his father, telling him that Sheila was armed and dangerous. Anthony Arlich QC said that Sheila Cafell could not have committed the murders, as the case against the defendant was overwhelming. He said it was not credible to accept Bamba's explanation for why he did not call 999 after his father contacted him, choosing instead to contact the local police, and why had he left a rifle with ammunition in the kitchen? The defence's case was described as unbelievable and fanciful. Arledge said Julie Mugford was a compelling witness who had told the court of Bamba's plan to commit the perfect murder. The prosecutor said the test conducted on the rifle proved that it could not have been fired by Sheila if the silencer was attached, and with her blood found inside the device, how was it possible it was anyone else? Also describing Sheila Caffell as a slip of a girl, the prosecutor questioned how she managed to overpower Neville Bamba, a six foot four inch man who was beaten into submission. Arledge said Bamba's fatal mistake was his explanation of the phone call he received from his father. Over the telephone, Neville allegedly shouted Please come over. Your sister has gone crazy and has got the gun. As the prosecution believed it now impossible that Sheila carried out the shooting, Jeremy Bamber was trapped in a lie so if there was no phone call, he must have committed the murders. Unfortunately, records of phone calls to and from the house were not available, so it was impossible to verify if any calls did take place. During his closing speech, Geoffrey Rivlin for the defence retraced the prosecution's argument that Jeremy Bamber murdered his family to inherit an estate worth £436,000, however described the theory as pathetically weak. He pointed out that the prosecution had failed to provide any evidence that his client was aware of the total value of the estate and most certainly would not know the intricacies of transfer tax which would have been owed. This left the only motive being a complete dislike for his family. And although Rivlin acknowledged that the court case had certainly not lacked any drama, what it did lack, he said, was proof. Addressing his client's calm testimony throughout the trial, he said Bamber had been accused of being cold and calculating. However, if he had been overly emotional, he would have been accused of crying crocodile tears. The jury were reminded of Julie Mugford's testimony, in which she protested, and was sometimes unable to speak. Geoffrey Rivlin said, Who are we dealing with in this case? A consummate actor, or a consummate actress? At the end of October 1986... After the judge, Justice Drake provided his summary of the case the jury retired to consider their verdict. Before a verdict was reached Colin Cafell was asked how he felt about Jeremy Bamber and his thoughts on how the investigation had been handled. As
4: far as cold-blooded murder goes, um, if he's found guilty, I'll be glad that justice will be done. At the same time, I wonder if he must be ill as well, if this um, mental problem might have affected him as well in the family, in which case, I feel very sorry for him as well. I think, OK, I think they made mistakes at the beginning. or well, certainly some of them did. Um, from what I've heard, there's a couple of the policemen who were the first who went in um, and, and took some of the original statements from Jeremy and I, who weren't quite so happy about it, but that they were going on holiday the following day and they weren't around again for another week, by which time the case was still kept open and, and they made their feelings known. But... Uh, Yes, they made blunders, and you know,
2: they shouldn't have accepted things quite so easily. Colin then spoke about the accusations that Sheila had been involved.
4: I was furious, but you know, about the whole the whole thing because um, the media had had taken um, the idea of the fashion world on. You know, they had a preconceived idea about it and, and lumped a whole load of. Um, brought the whole thing on to her, and basically she was publicly pilloried. She was far from being the person that that it was made out she was. She was a very kind, sensitive person. Lonely um, a lot of the time. uh, When the twins were living with me to help her through her uh, depression, she missed them desperately.
2: Yeah, they were the whole world to her, the most important thing there was. Finally, Colin was asked how he remembered Sheila and the twins. I suppose they were three children and they all enjoyed life um, in their own
4: ways. Sheila, when I first knew her, was had the same bubbly vibrance that the twins had. Um, it's only something that was slowly sort of I feel bludgeoned out of her as she grew older. Um, yes, they were very wise children very entertaining hmm. humor they love music music was their world as well you know a lot of a lot of pieces of music spark off memories of the twins you know there's and there's so many of them.
2: After five hours of deliberations at Chelmsford Crown Court, the jury could not reach a unanimous decision, so they were sent to a hotel for the night. They had been reminded by the judge that Julie Mugford, Jeremy Bamber's ex-fiancée, had told a packed court that Jeremy had wanted his family dead and had spoken at length about how he was going to do it. Bamber's defence counsel insisted this was a pack of lies, told by a jilted woman. Is that whole story a pack of lies, a complete fabrication? pondered the judge. As he addressed the jury, he asked them, if she had made it all up, every bit of it a complete lie, could she then repeat it at such length, and then in such detail, and stick to her story under the cross-examination of a skilled advocate? Judge Justice Drake summed up the case and refresh the jury's memory regarding the forensic analysis completed on Sheila's body. I've reminded you of the fact, and it is a fact, he said, that when she was found she had no marks of blood on the soles of her feet and no marks of having handled bullets on her hands. He also stated it was a fanciful theory to believe that Sheila Cafell had killed her family, shot herself upstairs, remove the silencer from the weapon, walk downstairs to place it in the gun cupboard before returning to the bedroom and taking her own life. It would be up to the jury to decide. This is the end of episode 43, the penultimate episode of season 3. To hear more on the outcome of the trial and what happened next, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast provider. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. You can now pre-order your copy of our new book they Walk Among Us. Available on Thursday, May 30th, 2019. In paperback, ebook and audiobook.